In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Uh, I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Real. Uh, it's a similar show. We get some cool people in the, on, in the house. Uh, we find out what makes them tick, their story. Uh, we've got a, a brilliant guy on this week named uh, Ido Portal, and he's a movement artist. He's this uh, really fascinating guy from Israel who's all about uh, human movement and how we've kind of lost touch with movement. He hates the concept of the fitness industry. He thinks as humans we should be moving like 15 hours a day not like three times a week for 14 minutes or 45 minutes. So uh, anyways, it's a great story. You can check that out at LondonReal.tv. But today we're here to talk tech. Uh, Colin Pyle is missing. Uh, this is not Colin Pyle. Uh, <laughs> Colin is in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, he went AWOL. I don't know if he's expanding his coffee universe to the U.S. I'm not sure. Uh, but this is Mr. James Dawson. Uh, I've known James for eight years, maybe ten years. Uh, you are the head of Europe for Open Fin, uh, which is out in uh, Level 39 in Canary Wharf. Yeah. Uh, you are also the CEO of Humble Grape, which is a wine and tech play. You guys just raised uh, 530,000 pounds on Cedars, the uh, equity crowdsourcing platform. Yep. Uh, we had Jeff Lynn from Cedars in here about nine, nine months ago. Yeah. Uh, congrats on that raise. Thank you. That's big. Yeah. That's really big. Yeah. Now you have to spend it. Yeah, that's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> how's, um, uh, how's things at OpenFin and how is uh, the wine business? So, um, firstly, just a quick explanation for everyone what OpenFin is. Yeah. It's, um, it's a brandable app store for corporates to deploy web technology, HTML5, um, and Silverlight and Flash, but predominantly HTML5, uh, onto the desktop uh, in, in-house and also onto people's desktops at the client side. So if you build a, an app or a GUI in HTML5, the way to deploy it today is using Internet Explorer or, or, a, or a browser, but um, then you're stuck in that browser frame. If you want a native app, uh, something that runs with 100% HTML5 compliance and it's performant to finance requirements, then you can run in OpenFin. Awesome. That's what we do. Okay, cool. I like it. And uh, wine-wise, are you going to set up in Shoreditch? What's going on? So wine-wise, so we've raised £530,000, and we, um, we have this idea where we would, we would open up a, a wine bar that um, is also a wine shop, and it's got a big tech play. And the, the idea is to democratize wine to people. So uh, our, our mantra is relax, it's only grape juice. So we've, we've got fantastic wines, yeah. and we want to make it really easy and accessible for people to understand. So our vision is to have a ground floor restaurant, shop, wine bar, and then a basement where we've got a, an event space and an education space. And what we'd like to do is uh, try and train somewhere between 10 and 15 underprivileged um, young people in Hackney as wine waiters and sommeliers. 
and and let them loose on London and and you know give them a way to earn a living. There's a huge shortage of that. Love it, man. Yeah. That's a fantastic story. I've been to your yeah. tastings. They're so much fun. Uh, hence the name Humble Grape. It's like it cuts through all the nonsense, and he explains what a Chablis is, and it's all it's all actually really simple, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the industry sometimes builds up a front. So um, excellent. Thanks so much for being here as Thank co-host. Um, all right, shall we get on with the show and, and introduce this lady here? Uh, it's uh, Miss Bernadine Broker. You are the founder and CEO of Vastari. Uh, which is an online service that allows art collectors to connect with curators uh, without dealing with a middleman. Uh, you guys founded in 2012. You were incubated at Microsoft Ventures or Accelerated. We're going to find out more about that. Uh, you just closed a round of funding in April. Uh, your team is all women, or it was all women. We're going to find out about that. Um, Bernadine, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thanks for having me. You know, I, Great I, description. Yeah, thank you. I'm getting really good at these. I'm getting really good. I might, I might move this into a separate business. Just my introductions. Elevator pitches. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're our first art tech guest, and so I've got so many questions for you. You know, we always talk about, you know, the innovator's dilemma. James and I spent years and years in finance, and we know that, you know, they're dragging their heels when it comes to accepting tech and getting disrupted. We talk about healthcare. Again, it's going to take a lot of effort, but when I think about the art world, I think about, like, old dudes sending snail mail to each other and I just I, I would think that these would be the last people that you could even get online that yeah. you could even get to open a browser let alone show their works of art and I'm talking from the curator side as well you must be talking yeah. and maybe yeah. I'm being unfair so tell us about the industry Bernadine if you could tell us about how you got involved and just what, what your feel is for art tech going forward. Sure um, definitely the way you describe the industry is how it works it's extremely slow paced reliant on networks of people around, um, around the world who are super connectors. Um, but as you said, they're getting older, they're um, kind of getting out of touch with emerging markets. So there really is a need for tech to get involved in order for the collaborations and the um, exchange of ideas to continue happening and not rely on humans. Um, what brought me to this was um, I was... I helped set up a gallery in Mayfair. Uh, we were selling Impressionist and Modern Paintings. Um, it did really well. We set up in London, then we set up in New York. And um, some of our clients would come up to us and say, I have a work that was perfect for that exhibition, but I didn't know about it until it was at the museum. Is there any way that I can just let the museums know that I've got this amazing work without exposing it to the market? Um, and when I say that, uh, the reason you wouldn't want your work to be known to the market is just um, you don't want to be hassled to, for it to be sold, for, for people to know that you own something that's that valuable, that kind of thing. Okay, so confidentiality is a exactly. big thing. Uh, confidentiality is huge. And um, so, so I thought about it. I, I, I heard these people, and I thought, let me find out if there's anything out there where they can just communicate with, uh, with museums directly. And it was just impossible. The only way was through academics or through art advisors, through um, people in the market like auction houses and, and, and art dealers. So you, there was no real way for the public and the private sector to really interact. And I thought, it's easy to do with a website, really. And did you have a tech background at all? Um, Kind of, I guess. Okay. Uh, I, I was a graphic designer in New York before coming to London to do my right. master's in art history. Parsons, so you had yeah, to there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So Parsons, and I actually ironically did some work um, for a short period uh, for museums, doing graphic design for museums. So somehow it's come full circle. 
Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of understood HTML, CSS, but I'm definitely not a backend coder or anything like that. Okay, so you started this January 2012. Yes. You left the, the art house you were at, and you just said, I'm going to do this? Yeah, I mean, I started off with it weekends, evenings, um, just on the side to see if there really was something there. Um, and by June of 2012, it really was like, okay, this deserves full attention. And um, I was lucky enough to have the backing of some great people from the beginning who were collectors who understood the art world and said, we'll fund you if you do want to do it. So during those six months, I knew the funding was there. I knew that we could potentially do it. So um, I was investigating how it could work. Okay. And when did you decide to go with Microsoft Ventures? Um, because that's like a 12-week accelerator program, right? Yes. It's interesting because we've had a lot of incubators, accelerators in here, and they can change companies. They can also be the wrong thing for companies. Yep. So yeah. I'm curious. It was a huge decision. I don't think right. I would have known. Uh, first of all, coming from the art world, you don't even know about accelerators. Right. But I kind of... There came a point where we felt we were very much in the art world, but there was something missing. And, and we were also trying to figure out our, our subscription and revenue model. And um, just exploring the different uh, means. And so started reading Lean Startup and all those kinds of things. And um, then you suddenly realize that a lot of the companies that you admire and that you see doing well have gone through an accelerator. So I started investigating and came upon Microsoft Ventures because of the fact that we do code in .NET. So I just thought, well, Microsoft, okay, we don't have an aversion to Microsoft. And... Uh, not to say that a lot of people have an aversion to Microsoft, <laughs> um, but they, it does have an old school vibe. Isn't to that it, funny right? how that can happen so quick? Yeah, because twenty years ago it was the opposite. Yeah, yeah. They, they keep saying we're the original startup, and I guess you could think of it that way. Well, big uh, success does breed contempt in a, in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. Google, and I think Google they are... will start getting hated as well soon. Yeah. It's also the innovator's dilemma. As soon as you get yeah. a big mo model with a big company with a big revenue model like software, then you don't want to make the changes. And it, I mean, yeah. the same thing yeah. will happen to Google exactly. in another yeah. five, ten years, I think. Yeah, but. definitely. And I guess it's, it's nice that they were so introspective to be like, actually, we want to help some young companies out. And so they don't take equity. You just go in for 12 weeks. Okay. They've changed it now to 14 weeks. And um, you, the first day, you are put into a room with 12 advisors, including someone from branding, someone from PR, someone from, uh, what else, uh, venture capital, someone from like uh, lean, teaching lean methodologies, just basically all these experts, legal, accounting, and they break down everything you've done. They crush your, your ego. They make you feel like you're nothing. But luckily you've just made it into the accelerator. So you know you are one of 12 that they have chosen out of hundreds, but you still feel like, why am I here? And then, um, and then slowly you figure out what you need to do in those 12 weeks. And we came out of the accelerator a much more concrete and focused company than when we, when we went in. Did you choose? I mean, there are obviously lots of, of options here. There's, you know, Techstars, there's Wayra, there's incubators, yeah. there's, I mean, there's so many, you know. Uh, we, we did look at others. I think Microsoft Ventures was the only one that we really kind of wanted to go with. Also, as I said, we had shareholders already, so they could be a little bit more... Um, weary of what we were doing, whereas a, a big brand like Microsoft, they can kind of trust and the, the fact that they're not taking any equity. It was quite a good option for us as, okay. a, as a company with stakeholders. When did you start the Accelerator program? Um, in uh, February, beginning of February. This year? Yeah. Okay, and it ended in April? Yeah, May. end of April. End so of April. it was um, three months. 
And did you find that you actually doing something with any of the other startups in the accelerator? Did you get to know them better? And, and, and I mean, we were the oddball, right? So we're, first of all, four ladies and we're working with art and we basically are completely <laughs> different from everyone else. So it didn't really work that we would collaborate, but there definitely was a lot of overlap in the type of emotions, the type of problems you're struggling with. And you can just advise each other, really. Mm. Yeah. And you accelerated at Central Working? Yeah. In Whitechapel? We were actually one of the first people in there okay. uh, when it was still almost a building site. And okay. we kind of so James Layfield, grew with it. From the CEO there, he said it was zombie proof, that building. He said it has its own electrical generators. It's <laughs> completely off the grid. I don't know. He said it was like a beautiful building. It was almost like the Selfridges of its time. Yeah. It's, it's it, it looks like a little Selfridges. It's, it's this huge building with like decorations and things and they've just basically cleared it out taken out all the partitions and made it this huge space where you can work and um there's a lot of people there including the barclays fintech accelerators yeah. there as well escalator people, project yeah. right yeah if exactly. you look at you and the company say from may and january what are the biggest changes that, that you made by going through that accelerator um well uh we there's so much, really. Um, we, of course, started generating revenue. I think that was one of the biggest things. We finally kind of cracked it and figured it out. Of course, it's not at the scale that we want, but we started getting that type of... Is that of, through being there? Did, did, did you get access to clients off the back of that? Um, so we... I wouldn't say clients particularly. It was more about the mentors. So we, we got assigned a mentor who was involved with... Um, a lot of telecoms uh, uh, companies, and um, as a result, we kind of understood subscription models better and why people would sign up and what kind of incentives you have to give people and why they would re renew their subscriptions and this type of thing, which um, we always kind of knew that it had to be a, a membership-based company, but we weren't sure how. What so. is the trick with subscription? Because everybody wants a subscription model. Everybody wants the Gray's model, the yep. Zipcar. I just paid for an annual Zipcar yep. subscription. I'm wondering if I'm ever going to get that back. Um, <laughs> but well. like, it's it's you know, Collins Crew Cafe is a subscription model. It's obviously an investor's dream. But what but what do you have to do? Like when it comes from a startup, uh, either one of you, to to kind of get people to to buy into that. So the the beauty of a subscription model, and you, you'll have thought through this in a lot of detail, is that you don't have to keep selling. Right. You, you, you do one sale and then it just and then the cash just keeps coming every month and you can predict that your money's going to grow and it's going to keep coming uh, and in return for that you have to provide really clear defined value to the client to do the subscription model and software a lot of software is moving that way so software in the old school you used to pay millions up front and then you used to pay a small service fee down the line and it's all moving to just pure subscription yeah. pay, pay us a thousand pounds a month or so whatever. in the art world, what do you have to give them? I mean, if, if you're a curator, though, they need you for a long time, right? Well, that's the thing. Exhibitions are planned five years in advance, um, specifically also because of the slow turnover of information. So we are working with a really slow sales cycle when it comes to if you're, you as a collector upload your objects onto the system it's going to take a while before curators start responding. So we decided that it had to be an annual subscription because in a year you're likely to get uh, quite a few messages from curators asking about your work. Um, and then to kind of incentivize people to think about it as a long-term thing, we're also offering 10-year memberships. Okay. So it kind of gives you the idea that this is something that it's not just for now. It's something that you register your works of art. They're anonymous on there. They're completely secure. No one knows you own them, but they can contact you. 
they can say, this Picasso is perfect for my exhibition, I'll send them a message. And no one knows your email address, no one knows anything, it's just direct. Who's harder to get money out, the curators or the collectors? Well, I think um, it's, uh, with, with the curators, we actually aren't charging them. We are working with them on a non-profit basis, uh, just for, for a variety of reasons. I'm, I'm trying to think of the most easy way to say it. First of all, museums are like universities, so to even get five pounds subscription, you have to go through a whole bunch of decision makers. So that is a long-term process. And secondly, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, we're, we're in this gray area where museums are not supposed to help the private sector earn money, let's say. So we kind of have to show that we're saving them money before we can charge them in a certain sense. Okay. So you think you might charge them someday? Yeah, but in a different way. We're, we're still exploring how curators feel comfortable with that. Um, but they are a wealth of knowledge, and they're organizing these amazing events. So we are letting them sign up for free and basically help collectors raise the value of their okay. works. Of art. Let's talk about your business a little more, just so people know. I mean, you yeah, have, exactly. You, you have four hundred thousand plus works of art on your system. You've got one hundred and fifty museums, five of the top ten uh, most visited museums. I mean, these are big numbers, right? And there's there's fifty five thousand museums in the world. Yeah. So, and what are you trying to do? Provide provide this anonymous service online, so it's really a small group of people just looking at each other's things. Yes, and uh, I mean, it is a, it is very niche, but it is quite broad because even though you think about a collector of art, you immediately think of like the billionaires of the world. But really, there's, uh, according to some research done in 2012, there are about 950,000 high net worth individuals or ultra high net worth individuals who have works of art that are of museum quality. Okay. So it's, it is quite a, a market. And um, there are a huge variety of reasons why these people would want to be on our system. It's not only because of the fact that um, they get the feeling of sharing something with a museum and sharing it with the public and that kind of feel-good factor. There are also some financial benefits. Um, Of course, you're saving money on storage if it's in storage. You're saving money on insurance because it's insured while it's at the museum. So you kind of have small um, financial benefits as well. And then in some places, like the UK, um, if you exhibit your work a certain amount of time a year and it qualifies as an important work of art, um, by uh, considered by HMRC as culturally significant, then you get a tax break tax on inheritance breaks. tax. Okay, so that's a big upside. Yeah, for them. exactly. There's a huge upside, and the public benefits because these works, instead of being in a warehouse somewhere or being hidden somewhere, they actually come out to okay. the public. But they don't pay you for the works of art. Like, so if if the Tate Modern displayed my Ai Weiwei piece for six months, they don't pay me, but they do insure it and store it for and that And they time. pay for the shipping. So okay, and get me press and potential tax credits. And, and of course, and. the fact that a work of art almost has like a CV. Part of the, the value of art comes from... It's where it's been shown. Where it's been shown, oh, so. who has owned it. So, so it jacks your market price of your art up. Yes. And uh, your other you collection. Yeah. But then again, see, that's where the gray area comes in. We're not trying to, we're not guaranteeing that your work of art is going to go up. We're not saying, like, register it and it'll happen. But there is a nice benefit of having your work in a museum. Is this the LinkedIn for artwork? Or the Facebook of artwork? <laughs> it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of art tech companies out there. So there's a company that just raised, like, 
a lot of money from Index. Um, I've heard of Artsy and Auctionata and Artfinder. And yeah. someone just raised money from Index? Yeah, okay. a, a company called Artbinder, which okay. is uh, led by uh, also a woman. Um, and uh, I mean, it's... But that is solely about um, helping the market and helping sell works of art. And a lot of the art tech companies work with art sales. We stay away from the market completely and we're trying to basically bridge that world with the culture sector that is so on the other side of the spectrum. Okay, so art finders like the eBay of art. And, yeah, and uh, you are the. Or is that the wrong way? I mean, I, I I wouldn't call it that. No. Well, there's also the you. other thing. There, there's a whole bunch of them. So, Art Finder is contemporary art by emerging artists that you can buy at an affordable price. Then there's Art Binder, which is a collection management system for galleries and dealers. So, like, there are so many art tech companies out there. It's a okay. huge little industry. industry. Is, yeah. is art tech kind of late to the game by a couple of years because the art world was slow? I mean, do you see it as just kind of catching up really fast right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. It's really, really exciting. I think there's also a transition happening with a lot of the um, important people in the art world becoming older and starting to think about who's gonna, where, where it's going to go. So um, people are inheriting art, people are inheriting galleries. And so you kind of have to think what's going to happen in the 21st century to this mm. market. So, so an interesting thing is, how do you curate and, and, and allow people to find the art on there? So, yeah. for example, you have to categorize it really carefully so that if I'm a curator, I can go on and I can find a piece of art. Yes. How, how do all your categories oh, work? Oh, it's, it's it, it must terrible be, it must when a curator a... doesn't find the work that they want, you know? And you think, it's on there. I need to make sure that the keywords are working. Um, because we kind of left it in the hands of the collectors. And we said upload as many keywords as you want. You can uh, upload where it's from, you can upload everything, and then curators will be able to find it. But sometimes collectors get a little bit nervous about why am I tagging it so much? I don't want it to be that visible. Mm. I'll give you the name, I'll give you the artist, and if someone wants to know, they can contact me. But that just doesn't help the search engine. Right. So we constantly are trying to find out innovative ways to make sure that people, that, yeah, the discoverability is still there. Yeah. It's yeah, it's, uh, How, it's uh, tough. How's your tech? I mean, is, do you see this as a big kind of a tech search engine type piece? I mean, do you have to spend a lot of money on tech? Or is most of your money now need to go to marketing? And, and... It's, 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 um, I, I guess you could think of it in the way of how our team is structured. So we've actually got three people in London full-time working on client development and business development. So um, the rest of my team is just basically focusing on the clients and making sure that we're listening to them, what they need, what, how they're reacting to the system, what's bothering them, what kind of new things would be exciting. And, um, and then on the other side, we've got one full-time uh, coder who's like our guru. And then we have uh, about three freelancers that work with us all the time. So if you think about it, client development is a huge part of our right. of our system. Of our, of our, because yes, our individuals are high net worth. Yes. There's only a million of them, then there's not a billion of them. Yeah. So you can kind of go at them methodically. Exactly. And if they're, if they're museum exactly. curators, you have to. Do you have to wine and dine them like the art world? <laughs> or is this just my, my depiction of the art world? Well, but, but that's the whole thing that we're trying to go against, right? We're trying to not be that middleman who's whining and dining and, 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 and schmoozing. We are using the tech to make sure that, it's, um, it, it, that you can connect without us even knowing. So people say, oh, yes, so you must know so-and-so at this, this museum. And I say, yeah, he uses my system, but I don't necessarily know him because okay. we don't get in the middle. Okay. Um, however, of course, if they do want us to get involved, we can help with insurance, we can help with storage, we can help with uh, cataloging the works. A lot of them are not photographed. So just 
that whole side of it is still from an industry that needs to get digital. So a lot of them aren't photographed. Interesting. Because we yeah. had, we've had some people in here. I'm thinking of one, uh, Jenny Griffiths from Snap Fashion, who works down at Idea London. She has an image, rec- image recognition. You see uh, a dress, you take a picture of it, it tells you where you can buy it online. It'd be amazing if you could take a picture of a Van Gogh and then it tags it automatically. And well, there's some cool stuff happening with um, image recognition and paintings. I mean, I know some guys who are, um, actually, they're one of the teams that are now coming into the Microsoft Accelerator. They've got an image recognition app for museums so you get the tag on your phone or you can listen to it um, uh, uh, on an audio guide so instead of having to hold an audio guide from the museum you can just look at the picture it recognizes it and tells you what it is nice there's a lot going on that's potentially way down the line uh, I guess when it comes to like art art recognition yeah 3d but to, to, to digitize every work of art that's in yeah, the world. It's a huge... It's but, a huge but they're doing that with books, right? And yeah. wine and everything. Right, right, right. I yeah. mean, if you think about it, 90% of the objects in museum collections are not on display. Now, fair enough, a lot of it is, for example, you've got one wooden relic from some time period. You probably have 50 others of those. The British Museum has 2,000 of those, so they're not going to be on display all the time. But there's a huge proportion of works of art that aren't even known, and a lot of them are not even digitized. So one of my colleagues, um, Francesca, she was working at the British Museum, helping them catalog their collection of prints, because they've got so many prints that they don't even know what they have. Right. Big market, big market. Uh, When you leave the accelerator, is it like kicking a a child out of the house to go to college? I mean, do do, (laughs) do you miss being accelerated? We might be, we might be the, um, the child that's kind of still, still living at home because we're still there. Um, I mean, we, we were lucky enough that, um, we, we could stay at central working and, um, as a result, it didn't feel as like cold hearted booted out. All of us, um, the whole accelerator stayed for, um, three more months after the accelerator. Okay. So we kind of had some time to digest that we're now on our own. And even so we all work together still. We all kind of talk to each other, um, digitally or in person. There's, there's a lot of communication still. And with our mentors, we're still in touch. I mean, it's all, Okay. And what's the next step? You just raised a quarter million pounds. Is that right? And that gives you a year, you said, 18 months of... Yeah. I mean, uh, we we do have the runway, but we need to kind of prove everything that we've been hypothesizing about what's going on. So um, we have a few really exciting new features that we're developing, that we're launching in September that really will change things. I think I mentioned it as well at Demo Day. So for example, for museums... Uh, this is getting a lot further into our, our business. That's all right. But um, uh, so we are helping individual works go into exhibitions. And um, as a result, the work gets the benefit of being in an exhibition and the exhibition gets the benefit of having a work that's not seen as often as it usually does. But these exhibitions are IP in their own right and they are extremely valuable to museums. And in order to make it more viable, especially in Europe where budgets are getting cut, it's very good to move exhibitions around the, around the world to different venues. Entire so can, exhibitions. Yeah, entire okay. exhibitions. So we're kind of creating this side platform where museums can talk to each other about moving exhibitions around, um, around the world. And then our original database becomes even more valuable because when an exhibition goes from, say, France to the Netherlands, some works can't leave France. So in order to fill in those gaps... You go to the private collectors and you say, 
do you have this work uh, do you do you have a work that would work in this situation would, would so, someday you pitch the exhibition would you create it maybe one day and I it'd mean, be like we are working with a few private collectors who want to pitch a starry branded uh, exhibition yeah i mean it's um there are amazing stories behind why collectors own what they do and it doesn't have to be like picassos it can also be like some really interesting collection of stamps or arms and armor and the way the person has collected it has a story has a there's a reason they have bought all these things and that can be an exhibition in and of itself it's 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 the love that you have while you're collecting and um we're really looking into making that more available to museums as well and that you know, James, I'm thinking like from an investor standpoint, if I'm going to put money into this, I'm thinking, yeah, but is there someday this exponential payout? Yeah. Are people always thinking you're going to get into the art trading business or are people always thinking now, yeah. now we're going to sell uh, MX uh, gold cards, sorry, uh, black cards yeah. to these people? <laughs> I mean, there must be people oh, thinking so much, about, so much. And so what do you say? What do you say to them? Because you want to show them potential billions of revenue, but then you also, yeah, it, you're, 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 you said, I think, how many trust- potential subscribers are you going to get if you not charging the, 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 the museums how many potential subscribers yeah. and are there in the world but ultimately you said trust is your most important piece in this yes. world so so uh, that's the thing we've been approached by they're called the private salespeople at a lot of these um big organizations who are like so just sometimes if someone asks you uh how do i sell my basquiat why don't you point them in my direction and you'll get an introductory fee? But that will break all the trust and everything that we've built. And also we are working with museums that have an extremely strict code of ethics when it comes to um, sales of art. So we're like trying to make sure that we stay on that, on that, on that ethical high ground, I guess you could say. So, um, I mean, yes, there is potential there in the future as long as it's an opt-in feature that's yeah. separate from Vastari in itself and separate from the museums. It's possible. There's a lot that's possible. Because I it, think it yeah. kind of remains murky because you upload everything there and then someone might see that piece of art and go, I'd like to buy that or I know someone Well, the, the, the work that. of art is only visible to museums and we personally verify every single museum on there. Okay. So, and do they sign a big... Nest- disclaimer and everything that what they can and can't do the data and all that stuff um yeah the terms and conditions say what you can and can't do for the uh, with the data and it specifically says we are not here to market works of art for sale um but uh, museums themselves know what they should and shouldn't be doing so it kind of uh, it speaks for itself and what if i sneak into a museum and just look up their database and i'm like the sotheby's guy and i'm like oh yeah 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 i mean you, you worry about people hacking your system well th- that, that's uh, everything is reportable so if you get a message from a museum that says hi i want to buy your work i'm i'm in partnership with sotheby's that collector if they're unhappy they're going to report it to us and that person won't be allowed on the system anymore same with the works of art themselves. People keep saying, how do you know it's real? How do you know it's authentic? Um, all this kind of stuff. It's all self-regulating. But we also have a partnership with um, a, a big organization called the Art Loss Register, where you can check if the work of art has been registered as stolen or lost or fake before in the past. So we don't take on the liability, but we're giving you all the resources to be able to make sure that you, you read these days, like every other day, there's an article in the New York Times about an artwork that was owned by someone and stolen by someone. Like if I was an art dealer, so I was an art owner, I'd be paranoid about putting my collection online because there might be a hundred people lining up to take it from me. I mean, do you have to deal with this? I mean, that's a huge issue, especially in the antiquities world. Um, when you're talking about works of art that come from like 
year zero, uh, there's a huge long Everyone story of where it's coming Gen- from. Genghis Khan has and, a claim. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult and we, we are constantly in touch with people about that. But right now, I think the hot topic and something that is being talked about at the UN and everything is the fact that some of these works, they, they're really old, so there's no way you can tell if it was dug up yesterday. And, for example, with works from Iraq or Afghanistan or Cambodia, a lot of these pieces are coming into the market and people don't know where they come from. So there has to be a lot of, more of a tighter um, uh, surveillance of what's going on with the works of art. Because, well, there's rumors that uh, some of these antiquities that have been stolen out of uh, sites in, in the Middle East have actually funded terrorist activities and things like that. Right, so you have to be We're very, getting onto a whole other subject, that. but yeah. yeah. A lot of things to talk about here. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about women in tech. You know, we, we've had plenty of women guests here, but you hear it all the time. There's not enough women in tech or, or the women fairly represented in tech. You're kind of new to tech, but you're yeah. all women. Like you said, you stick out like a sore thumb at Central Working. <laughs> what, what's it been like? What's the experience? Um, and what, what needs to change and what doesn't need to change? I love the fact that we transitioned from terrorism to yeah, women to, in to tech. Women. Straight away. <laughs> no Ambush. <comment. laughs> Ruining the tech world. No, I think that I never noticed that there was uh, an issue there um, until actually the day that they announced the cohort because we went up on stage and we were the only girls. And it was like, wait. Right, you said What's it on stage. On? You said you can find us because we're the only girls. Yeah, right? okay. exactly. So, but but the thing is, we didn't realize it. We've never thought about it that way. And also, it's not an all-female team because I set out and said I'm going to hire only women. I mean, it was they're the right people for the job. So um, Angela's fantastic with her network in in um, the Americas. Marta is Polish but speaks Japanese and Mandarin and knows everything you want to know about Asian art. So that's the type of person that needs to be in. In the, in the team. Uh, if it was a guy, then it wouldn't matter. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we've been spoiled, but like all the women we've met on the show in tech have been like off the charts. You know, Emily Brooke from Blaze and Sherry Cotu yeah. and Jenny Griffiths. And it's like the whole, like Courtney Boyd Myers is like, they're all killing it. Yeah. So uh, they make the men look bad. You know, yeah. I don't know if that, is it, <laughs> do, do you find like when you're pitching venture cap or anything, is it, I mean, is there anything different, you know, being female? I, I don't know, because I don't know what it's like to be a guy pitching for venture capital. Yeah. But I mean, well, I, I well do said. think that we, um, we're extremely positive and we just go for it. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think that reflects badly, right? Okay, let's just... talk location. Yeah, you are uh, from, uh, uh, <laughs> you're from uh, where are you from? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, my parents are Dutch. I never lived there. I, I was born there, and then uh, we moved to South America. And I guess I would call myself Dominican. Dominican. Yeah. You went to a school in New York City. You're here in London. Yeah. What, why should uh, Vastari be based in London? Why shouldn't it be somewhere else? And uh, will you someday, someday be other places? Um, well, th- that's a funny question. I think the reason we're in London is because the art world here is quite um, diverse, and there's a lot of uh, emerging markets that are coming into here. So Brazil, uh, the Middle East, uh, China, Japan, they're all very present in London. And as a result, you kind of see where the communication divides are happening, right? So everyone meets in London, and that's where everything happens. But as soon as they go back out, the communication stops. So it's a, it's a great place to start building a, a product like this. Um, also, I guess... Um, what else? I think we've got, uh, we started off thinking that we were going to be only in the UK and we kind of were like, well, there's tax incentives, there's great museums in the UK, let's put them together. 
And then we had a, an, a, a journalist in the States write about us. And suddenly there were a whole bunch of American collectors and museums interested in what we were doing. And then we had some uh, press actually in Ukraine and Russia and, um, and Poland. And then there were a bunch of more people interested. So all of a sudden it turned into a worldwide product without us really trying. And we realized that it's really about the global uh, connections that happen. So, um, I mean, our successful connections are all international. So going from the UK to the US or Netherlands to Brazil to uh, Netherlands to China, China to the UK, that type of stuff. So yeah. it's... Um, Will you need people on the ground, though, in those places? Um, maybe, eventually, uh, depending on how it develops. Uh, at the moment, we've got a hands-off approach as soon as it comes to the logistics. We, um, we can help advise you to the right shippers if you want to have suggestions about that or who you should be getting doing your insurance but really uh, we're just connecting people so you don't really need to be at the exhibition space itself James you, you worked in, a, in a, the banking industry and you were trying to get a, a, us to go electronic and I remember it was a really difficult job because uh, you were trying to get us old school business guys to stop transacting business on the phone and go online and you built the whole broker tech system etc. Yeah. What do you see as, as big issues when it comes to like her crack in the art world you know I don't know what that, that, that's, that's a really good question Brian so the, the, the issues when you're taking a phone based or a you know, a, a traditional black book based business, uh, digital is about, uh, for me, the mo most important thing is, is user acceptance and yeah. users actually using it. So, yeah. and there's a, a huge amount of distrust that you're going to have to win people over and you're going to have to build a ton of mechanisms. If you're not in your head, you've, you've seen all of that. You can see all of yeah, that no, happening. It's just, it's, you're, you're, you're saying everything. Exactly. Um, You've got to give them a lot more than they had before, and you've got to make it their lives a lot easier, and and you've got to make it really, really use. I mean, I, su I suppose one of the the things that we focused a huge amount on was the actual the user interface and people being able to use it really easily and and really dumbing it down and making it so that it's just a no brainer. I've got my little black book. I've got my network. I know this guy John. I can call and he can get me some stuff. But actually, this thing is so easy to use and it's so beautiful. I can get so much more from it. Plus, there's all these other stuff. I'm going to start using that. Exactly. And you're not going to get everyone, but you're going to start getting enough people that it'll start creating a bit of a tipping point. Well, that's, I think, what is happening now when you were saying about what we're doing with our funding. It's very introspective, looking at the product, figuring out how to make people fall in love with it. I think when we started out, it was very much, this is a database and it's going to be serious and we have to look serious. So um, you kind of think of old school, kind of clunky type of things when you think about serious, yeah. like online banking, you know, it yeah. always looks really serious. Like a vault. Um, but to be honest, um, people love feeling like it's easy, exactly what you're saying. So we're completely transitioning into a different type of UI that's a lot more about feeling like you're in an amazing place that you can still secure but can really achieve a lot. Right, and fun and beautiful. and Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so then I suppose that, that begs the question, are you going to focus a huge amount of time on your brand and the feeling that that gives off? Is, or is it more for you about building that collection of investors on the one side and museums on the other side and their ease of access and their ease of use of the system? I mean, because that, that's an interesting 
where, where do you both. focus both? Yeah. I mean, uh, the lucky thing about working in a niche market like the art world is that you, um, the brand thing kind of starts happening. So people now kind of know about us, even though we're, ju- we're a startup, we've only been around for two and a half years. People in the art world do know about Vastari. So you kind of, that brand is starting to come together. And the more you talk about what exactly you're doing and are consistent about what you're doing, yeah. I think that brand gets built itself. So how would you describe your branding? Um, we're a non-partisan, trustworthy connector of people that's great like, that's, like, that's like six words I like it. Um, for, yeah. the, for the next year what's your biggest challenge um, gosh finding the time for everything uh, no I mean I think it's about that focus so we've got all this stuff we want to do there is so much that can be done because there's nothing being done so it's very easy to get distracted I think we need to focus on getting Vastari right as a, as, a, as a product that people yeah. love, that they want to use, and then also work on the features that will really entice museums and make them money so that it becomes a tool that they want to use all the time. Is hiring a big issue? I mean, do you need like two or three more key people? Um, or not necessarily? At the moment, no. I mean, okay. our last run, a funding round, we hired um, a, a few more people. So it kind of grew, and now we're Basically, it's quite lean, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good place to be right now. Okay. Personal habits. Do you work 24-7? Are you working Sundays? Do you encourage your team to do the same? Or do you, do you let, off, let off the reins well, a bit? I'm just curious. I, 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 when I started off, I was 24-7, weekends. I was unbearable. You have you a lot of energy. Does it, do you keep yeah. this energy up all the time? <laughs> yeah, basically. Okay. But I guess that's, that's the thing. You, you, now I'm a lot more honest and I'm like, there's a lot more you can get done 10 to 6 or 10 to 7, 9 to 7. You get a good day's work and there's a reason that that's kind of the tradition. It's because it kind of works well and you take time off in the evening, think about stuff and then get back into it. Um, and also we take a break we really like go and have lunch together um, for an hour, maybe less, depending on how much work there is, but really get disconnected from the computer. Just it's the time we talk and really make things get to the right conclusions and not chase your tail. Um, it's smart. And, it's very smart. Yeah. The weekends, I mean, there is no such thing as weekends when you're working. You got to work really. Saturdays at least. That's what I think. You know, I, I was actually, at, I was over at the Google headquarters and I walked in and it was like seven o'clock and everyone was work, was walking out and the guy showed me around, was showing me the cafeteria. They always show off their damn cafeteria. Those, those, <laughs> those Google guys. But I was like, where's the late nights? Where are the all nighters? Where's all this stuff? And he's like, Brian, he's like, anyone pulling an all nighter? Is, is, isn't planning. He's like, they're not getting their stuff done. He's like, that's a, a total person that's just not... And it's a marathon, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not, yeah. it's not yeah. that you're going to be... It's not the same as when you're working on a project for a company that you just have a deadline and you have to finish it by this t- point. You're going to start running the next day and the next day and the next day. And yeah. I think that's what you learn. Otherwise... You're you're done. There is there is no more energy. Is that true? Same from the guy that has the craziest week in, in it, his life. It, it, it is it is true. You you can't just always be killing yourself. Yeah. Um, because you need to you need to get stuff done the next day and the next day and the next day. And if you haven't if you're working all nighter, then yeah, then something's wrong. I mean, sometimes you go on a like creative frenzy and then you just yeah say well, let's go for it. Right. That's fun. And another interesting thing, someone sent me an email um, yesterday with an African proverb at the bottom of it that said. Um, to go fast, run alone, and to, to go far, run together. 
kind of thing. A whole advocate for team working. That's what, good, that is quite, that's what good, I'd repeat. That it's good to get those uh, African proverbs. Yeah. From, from your <laughs> South African no, they're always right. That's the thing about it. Um, and uh, I just want to say I do love everybody at Google. I love Easy Vitra down, at, uh, down the street uh, at the campus and Daniel at the Google headquarters. Thank you for the, for the tour. Um, Bernadine, we always ask uh, our guests a few questions at the end. Let me hit you with them. Okay. Uh, if you can make a phone call to the 20-year-old Bernadine and give her a bit of advice. I'm guessing you were in Parsons. I don't know. What would you tell her to do? Drink less. <laughs> <laughs> First time I heard that. <laughs> okay. All right. No, I'm joking. Would she listen? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. It's New York, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm a lot a person with no regrets, really. Would you, uh, would you have tried to get into tech earlier, or was that the right time? Did you need the background in art first? I think what's cool is taking something that you get to know really deeply um, uh, and then apply tech to it. I think um, I'm really happy I learned coding, and I'm literate, so I'm not like lost with all the um, code. But I, I think that you need to know a niche market really well. If you just go in knowing how to code, then the market... Is, uh, is not there. Right, and we see yeah. that happening a lot. Uh, second part of that question, uh, best advice you've ever received, business or personal? Ooh, that's a tough one. It's always a tough one. <laughs> Take your time. Um, uh, I think, um, yeah, it's all about the team to work together. Is this you're taught at the incubator or the accelerator? Um, no, I, I, well, yeah, they definitely are always like, the reason we accept people is from, for the team. But I think uh, I started out Vastari on my own with investors, and um, they were invaluable, of course. They helped a lot. But um, outsourcing coding to people and kind of thinking, like, I can do this on my own. And um, it's probably the reason it took a bit longer to take off. Um, I think that it would be much better if I had um, thought of it more as a team effort. And just the atmosphere in the office now, just having great people around you that you can really work with and understand without words is fantastic it's hard running a solo venture man it's just hard <laughs> it's just you put so much pressure on yourself you got nobody to bounce things off it's just no, it's hard exactly um yeah it's really hard it's not worth doing um and there's no fun don't do uh, it don't do it <laughs> last part of that question is to the to the 20 year old listening to us from anywhere in the world uh what do you tell them if they want to get involved in, in in tech somehow Ooh, i think um a lot of people in tech look at other companies and compare themselves and then say like, oh, I haven't done that, so I probably am not the right person to go into tech. If, if, if I had thought that way, then I wouldn't be here today. I think there, everyone builds their own path and builds their own um, trajectory. And uh, you, you, everything you do is baggage and learning experience um, to, to, to take with you. And as I was saying, like a, a job I did in New York for a little while, graphic designing for museums, is now affecting my decision now. And I would have never thought that back then. So just absorb everything that you're, um, you're experiencing and think about it as your own journey. Good advice. And trust yourself. And also, just because these people are doing it and they're on the magazines doesn't mean they know what they're doing either. Yeah. I mean, we, they all just jumped into tech, you know, a couple yeah. of years ago trying it out. So I think yeah. But, but they are too. the best people to get advice from as well, right? Yeah. So you yeah. totally um, get amazing feedback from, from those people and you should listen 
But to a certain extent, you can also start listening to so many people that... Get too much advice and then you just yeah. stalemate yeah. yourself. All you have exactly. to do is just listen to Silicon Real every week and you get everything. Um, <laughs> you get the inspiration to go. Yeah, you're there. Um, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, what's the best way for them to follow you? You're on Twitter or what's the best yeah, way? Yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm BJK Brocker. So those are my initials. And um, I uh, am also available on email. So it's Bernadine at Vastari.com. Okay. So, and if there's anyone listening that's a curator or a owner of large amounts of art, they should go straight to the website? Exactly. Um, you can try out Vastari for free as a collector with five objects. So you can try and see what kind of response you're getting. Um, otherwise, you can get the annual subscription and upload your whole collection. It's unlimited amount of uploads. And as a curator, yeah, you register and we'll call you up and check who you are. Make sure that you really are who you say you are and you'll get access. Love it. Love it. I'm so, fan- I'm so glad we had you here. Um, it's an exciting field I know nothing about, you know, but I'm learning. So, yeah. uh, it's- well, any more questions than we know. Yeah, no, yeah. we'll probably hit you up. If, if you have any questions for her, you can... <laughs> or a 60-minute tour of the National Gallery, happy yeah. to give it. <laughs> yeah. the, the connections, right? Um, no, this is, is a fantastic um, scene. Like, it's it being just over here in the Silicon Roundabout, you know, we don't get the Mayfair, you know, art people. So it's nice to see that side of it, you know, because yeah. people around here a lot of times are just pure tech plays. So we don't get other industry plays. So uh, it's great to hear about it. Um, uh, please uh, uh, visit uh, Bernadine on Twitter and check out the website. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, if you're listening to us on iTunes, come check us out on YouTube. Uh, we're all looking pretty good today. It's a little warm in the studio, but it, it's all right. <laughs> hottest and, day of the year. Yeah, it's like a hottest day there, but it's all good. And uh, um, if you're watching us live, thanks for watching. Um, I don't know what else to say, James. Thanks for being here. It's a great thanks. story. Yeah, it's huh? been a pleasure. Really, yeah, really nice really to meet nice you. Really nice to meet you. Yeah. Fun. Fun. We have like the best seats in the house. We're just like listening to this great story. So yeah. we're really lucky. Um, as we say on Silicon Real, it's about the people. You're one of them. Uh, I wish you all the best and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really amazing. All right, take care. About seven years ago, um, I lost one of my nieces. So, very young, um, congenital heart disorders, well, congenital disorders. In her final couple of days, I said to her, I'd do something that would change the world for her. And that was kind of my, my commitment. The success, the car you drive, the watch you wear, the house you live in, etc. Or is it the impact you make on people around you? Don't just do something that you think you have to do in terms of the what and the how. Do something that was really about the why. Very simply put, all I'm trying to do is make life a little bit more wonderful for people.